Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Jamie Attenberg, whose latest novel, All This Could Be Yours, is out now from HMH Books. Jamie is the New York Times bestselling author of seven books of fiction, including The Middle Steens and All Grown Up. She has contributed essays to The New York Times Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, The Sunday Times, and Long Reads, among other publications. She lives in New Orleans. All This Could Be Yours tells the story of the Tuckman family, whose mean and scheming patriarch, Victor, is on his deathbed. It's not a mournful occasion. Adult children Alex and Gary are more or less estranged from their parents, and neither of them understand why their frigid mother, Barbara, has stayed with Victor all these years. They also don't understand exactly what criminal deeds their father was up to, or why their parents have recently downsized from their palatial Connecticut compound to a condo in New Orleans, near Gary, his wife, and a granddaughter they aren't particularly interested in. It's a kaleidoscopic story, told over the course of one long day, but fluidly flashing back and forth in time. Jamie writes in alternating perspectives and energetic, darkly funny prose, each chapter complicating the story a little bit more. Crises, both shared and private, deepen. Secrets rise to the surface. The characters are not often likable, but they're always compelling problems to solve, both for the writer and the reader. In this conversation, Jamie and I talk about what attracts her to writing family narratives and why she especially loves writing mother-daughter scenes. We also talk about identifying and playing to your strengths as a writer and keeping the work fun for the reader. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation in which we discuss what makes a good dysfunctional family narrative by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. I really think about what I do as like gossiping about my characters. And I think family is just really rich territory from that perspective. Families are just really imperfect. So even when they're functioning, they're not quite working. <laughs> what was the first spark of All This Could Be Yours? The first spark was that uh, I think chapter six in the book was initially the first chapter in the book. And that's where Alex, who's the daughter of uh, Victor Tuckman, is sitting on a hotel roof with her sister-in-law and Victor Tuckman is in the hospital because he's had a heart attack. And the two of them are sitting on the roof kind of talking about family secrets. And so initially what I saw was two women sitting on the roof of a hotel, like at the pool, kind of casually having a cocktail, but talking about family secrets and a family member dying that they didn't really like so much. So it just started there. You know, with all my work, it usually starts with a character either thinking something or in conversation with another character. And the stakes are usually really immediate to me and the voice feels really fully formed. The first character always tends to be like a very familiar character to me. Mm. And then I just kind of went from there. You know, one thing that I was really struck by reading is because it is, you know, it's this long day is the structure. And I definitely want to talk to you about landing on that structure as well. But there is this sense of sort of you're kind of, as the reader, being sort of led through these moments of everybody's lives. There's a lot of reflecting and a lot of memories. The characters are so immediately intimate in a way that feels very much like a lot had to be written and left off the page, if it were me, you know, to talk, kind of talk about them that way. And, and I wondered if there was a lot more behind 
I guess that's a long way of asking what's your process of getting to know a character and and sort of then whittling away what ends up on the page about them. I have to say, and I don't mean to sound obnoxious about this, but I don't throw a lot away. Oh, yeah? My editor is always telling me to write more. Because my last book was really short. With this mm-hmm. book, she was like, can you, <laughs> can you make it a little bit longer this time? I think my last book was like, I think it was like 50,000 words or 55,000 words. And this one was 75,000 words. So um, I kind of went into it thinking, all right, I'm going to go longer. You know, sometimes I write dialogue between characters. Like I'll just have them sort of talk about stuff a little bit when I'm trying to get to know them a little bit better. But by the time I'm in it, I just kind of know what I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it really. I mean, I, I actually think I'm such a minimalist which is why my editor pushes me to do more. But I'm always trying to leave room, a little bit of room for the reader to kind of insert themselves into it. So I don't tend to overwrite. I write pretty efficiently. I mean, I've been, you know, it's my seventh book. So I kind of know, I don't want to say I know what I'm doing. (laughs) But I do know what I'm doing. I think the interesting thing about writing is that, and I work a little bit with students and I always say this to them, is like, once you know what your strengths are, you can just play to them over and over and over again. And then I try to push myself with every book to do new things and, and you said, we're going to talk about the structure later. The structure is one of the ways that I do that and try to be inventive in every single book. But I tend to know how to make a book work in terms of what I do well. And then, you know, where I have the holes, I mean, I've been working with the same editor for, this is our fourth book together. So that's eight years we've been working together. And I have a really good set of readers, like, you know, friends who are, are readers. And they tend to push me in different directions too. But in terms of getting like that, second to third draft. I mean, I'm just kind of cruising through it after a while. But I will tell you this, Courtney, um, I also write two books at the same time, usually when I'm starting out. So there's an entire book that gets thrown away or half a book that gets thrown away that has nothing to do with this book. So I think what I'm working out over in the other book at the same time in the initial stages is probably the thing that you're asking about, but it's not, it's not the same material. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's really interesting. So you're not even necessarily working on a, it's almost like just like a a kind of scratch pad project. Like you're not intending to create another book out of that project. No, I I am. Oh, okay. One one eats the other. Right, right. I never know going in what's going to happen. There's a, you know, hundred pages that was written at the same time as this for the last three books. I've been trying to write a ghost story. So Mm. I have three failed ghost story novels sitting there that have gotten thrown away. But I think I'm working stuff out in that way, but it's a completely different set of characters and a completely different storyline. I would love to linger on that concept for a minute because that really resonates with me. So I'm working on my first novel right now, and I've, I've done a lot of journalism and stuff, but this is my first first fiction project. And I realized just how much pressure I was putting on myself by it being the only thing that I was working on. And I had this other idea, but I kind of was just like shelving it. And so I've recently started toggling between the two of them. And it's, it is, there is something like incredibly liberating about that. That took me a long time to kind of like click into. I mean, it's not really like a cost efficient strategy for me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, writing is so inefficient. I've had to really just make peace with that. It really stresses me out how inefficient writing is. I'm sure that if I really calculated how much money I make, it is probably negative 15 cents an hour, considering how much time I do devote to my career and throw things away and stuff like that. So it's, you just have to sort of go all in and <laughs> yeah, hope that it works out. I think what happened was I was doing things where I was writing other books 
I think right around the time of St. Maisie before, in between the middle scenes and St. Maisie, I, I just focused on one book and I spent, I don't know, three months finishing a first draft and it was kind of closer to a novella, I think in length. And it was bad. Like it was really, bad. yeah. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I need to be doing two at the same time so that I know that one of them probably will work out. I mean, that will be a scary day when I do two at the same time and neither of them and will work. Yeah. I'll be really screwed. But I mean, just from a financial perspective, I was like, I can't really, I need to be doing two things at the same time just to make sure, you know, hedging my bets, I guess. Right. And I mean, you know, most memorably when they've been on the show, Jamie Quattro and Susan Choi talked about, you know, the projects that they were on the show to discuss, Trust Exercise and, and Fire Sermon were kind of like cheat books. It felt good to them to do it probably like they're like oh this feels good I'm gonna do this but if it feels good it can't be the right one right right what is that (laughs) it's very complicated but so like the thing is that they they know anyway is just to like write and see what happens yeah I haven't been writing in the last like month because I just finished proposal and then this book is coming out and there wasn't anything for me to work on. I just did a couple like essays and short pieces just to like keep my brain moving, but I can't wait to get back to work again because I just, I feel better when I'm working than when I'm not. How long did this project take? You seem to have a pretty steady output. I, so I think what I've figured out now is that things tend to take me about a year from start to finish. And so it's about three to six months for Three months is like a very close first draft. Mm-hmm. And then at six, it's like ready to be sent to my editor. And then another three months where I'm working with her. And then another three months or so where I'm, you know, and everything's give or take a month. Sure. And then three months where I'm kind of going through the copy editing process and sort of fussing around with, with things here and there. So it's about a year. This, I think it took me, I think I started in November of 2017. Yes. Started in November of 2017 and then um, finished it in the next summer, like a pretty solid first draft in like June, I want to say June or July. Again, writing the two books at the same time and then finished it really quick. I mean, we wanted I actually wanted it to come out in this fall. We'd, I was originally scheduled for spring of next year. And I was like, I don't really want to come out in an election year. Oh, God. Yeah. Like as we get closer and closer to the election, it's like sort of walking closer and closer to a fire. Mm-hmm. I said, if I really finish this <laughs> like fast, I mean, I really pushed myself. Like I actually could have used more time just from a mental perspective, but I really pushed myself hard because I did not want it to come out next year. I don't want to go anywhere near it. And God bless the people who ha- do have books coming out next year. And I think actually they're needed and I think that they'll do do, do fine. But I think for me, I would have, especially this book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's necessary and I'm glad that it's coming out. I think maybe next year people are going to need to read things that are really distracting rather than being fully in conversation. Mm-hmm. It's kind of more in conversation, I think, with what's going on. That could be wrong. I have no idea what people are going to be wanting a year from now. But that's something that I really admired in this book is how the kind of like larger social things that are playing out, issues that are playing out, they kind of are and aren't in focus, but you you move through them all really deftly. And I was especially struck with, um, I live in Pittsburgh now, but I lived for a few years previously in Detroit. And det- being new to Detroit is very similar to the way that you describe Twyla's feelings about being new to New Orleans. And there's just, and so I know how complicated 
all of those psychologies are. And you just moved through that all very deftly in a way that I was just like taking notes. Like, how do I... (laughs) How do you do that? So is that something that you're thinking about? You know, how do I kind of keep this balance calibrated or, you know, because when you once you dive into those issues, it can be really hard, especially when they are so complicated, you just kind of can tend to want to keep explaining them and keep talking them out, you know? So I think that if I had started this book and said, here's a list of things that I want to talk about that's going on in the world, I don't think this book would have worked. And this goes back to what is your you know, what's your skill set? What are your strong suits? Right. And to play up to them, I started this book thinking about characters. If the characters aren't there, then the book doesn't work. And if you preach too much or lecture or whatever, people don't want to hear it. That's not how they want to hear their messages. I mean, they do, but not in novels, you know? Right. And again, being kind of a minimalist and doing really simple strokes in certain places, I think is helpful for that. I didn't get an MFA. It's funny, the show is called WFA. <laughs> I didn't get an MFA either. So yeah, it's fine. I don't really have like a um, quick tip kind of thing yeah, yeah, yeah. at the ready. But somebody really early on, you know, when I started writing fiction said, when the topic is hot, the writing stays cool. Mm. That was something that was really important to me to sort of like not be, not go over the top as much as possible. But yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm aware, like I do look at things, I think because I have been heavy handed in the past. I mean, I loved my my second book with Cat Man, but I think when I look back at that, I'm like, well, I really could have taken a step back here and there. Mm. I'm also really conscious of wanting to reach lots of people with this. Again, it's like I want people who maybe wouldn't necessarily agree with my politics or viewpoints to be able to insert themselves into the story and have a different kind of, you know, understanding or relate to it. So I, you know, I picked characters that I don't identify with and I tried to understand them. So I don't know if I'm really answering your question or not, but I'm aware of it. And I try to focus on the characters and telling the truth of those characters and the rest of it filters in. I mean, any writer will, t- will would say that like, no matter what you do, your politics or your beliefs filter in through your work, even if you're not writing about <laughs> anything related to it all, it's still it's still going to show up. Yeah. And so so that idea of playing to your strengths, can you talk a little bit, this might sound like a super obvious question about realizing what your strengths were, are as a writer? Uh, I, th- I think that that uh, comes from being edited, mm. probably. Like I've had three really great editors in my career, and all of them taught me something different. And then sort of doing, you know, readings and talking to people and sort of hearing and getting even getting reviewed. I mean, I don't learn a lot from my reviews, but now there's sort of like a, um, a narrative about what I do and how I write that's out there a little bit more. And so I can see I've sort of learned along the way what people like and what they expect. Right. From me. But I would say getting edited is probably pretty crucial because my editors are, you know, there's a reason why they're with me. And what is it do you think for you about, particularly in this book, you know, about family dynamics that that's so attractive to you as a writer? Oh, boy, I keep getting asked that. And I don't, I don't know if I have like a really good answer. I think the thing is that I I really think about what I do is like gossiping about my characters. And I think family is just really rich territory from that perspective. Families are just really imperfect. So even when they're functioning, they're not quite working. (laughs) Right. I don't know. And it's just like a helpful structure for me in terms of exploring America. I mean, I just find them really, I just find them interesting. I mean, I've written about single people too. Of course. Their family is always kind of in, in the background. 
and there's more opportunity to open up the story in a, you know, just in a bigger way when you write about family, as opposed to a first person perspective. Like I have a wider reach when I write about family, but I don't always want to write about family. Mm -hmm. Like I really haven't written a like quote unquote family novel for three books, Mm -hmm. like the middle scene is my last family novel. So if I wrote it every single time, I don't think I'd have that much to say. Mm -hmm. It's been a really wonderful year for new Orleans books for Mm -hmm. New Orleans writers. And it's been really exciting. Like all, all these people have been doing really well and it's just exhilarating to watch it. And Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, her book comes out a few weeks after. So excited. Yeah. She was on the show for, for her first one. Her book's really great. And if you read it, you'll see that there's a scene where, and her book and both in my book where we're, our characters are actually waiting at the same intersection. Oh my God. I love that. It's really cool. Which I read hers and I was like, holy crap, the same intersection. And we both blurb each other's books and she gave me notes on my book um, because she's a native New Orleanian and a person of color and I have black characters in the book. So I, uh, she was one of my readers for that. And uh, I think that our books are really very interestingly in conversation with each other. So I fully recommend her book. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash W-M-F-A podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. Something that I really loved in this book is how it really deals with, in all of these different ways, the kind of roles that we take on in our families and the way that those kind of solidify, like even as we change as people, um, and how it's really hard to kind of disrupt those those dynamics. And, and I think that's really present with Alex and Barbara, you know, because Alex is the one really trying to get to the bottom of things and kind of get the gossip, like know the, know the secrets. And, and her mother is really reticent to open that up for a whole host of reasons. But I really loved that there is this blurb on the back that, that puts it very well about each chapter being this prism that turns. And I do think that there's very much that effect of just kind of getting a little bit more of a glimpse and everybody's kind of trying to chip away at their own version of these narratives. It's like you don't really want to know the truth about your family. Right. <laughs> right. First of all, I love writing mother-daughter scenes. Now that you said that, my mother is none of these characters, but my mom and I have very funny conversations and like really honest and she's really smart and I really like talking to her. I mean, I love those Barbara Alex scenes a lot. You know, mm-hmm. I don't really like Barbara and I don't really necessarily like Alex either that much, although she's okay, I guess. I like them driving in the car. I like them at the table. I like them kind of biting at each other in a hospital. Like all that stuff is really fun. And mothers and daughters are like super juicy men, you know, conversations with men. It's always like what they don't say. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) One thing that I do love about Barbara, just because I think this is so, it's such a fun thing to examine. I loved the detail that she doesn't really care about her grandkids that much. Like she's just not interested in the kids. Yeah. There's like so much she's not interested in. Like she's not interested in nature. Yeah. 
She's not interested in food. She's not, she's not interested. She's not interested in having a good time. Yeah. She's super interested in like her, her stuff, like her furniture and her jewelry and her clocks. She likes all that stuff. I was like, how do I get to know this character? Figure out what she likes, figure out what they like and what they don't like, you know? And I was like, what does she like? And I'm like, oh my God, she really doesn't like anything. Right, right. No, she doesn't take pleasure. And and even like her stuff, it seems to like soothe her. But another thing that kind of on that line that I would love to just talk a little, your choice of details and your choice of seeing what those characters, the different things they take from the same moment. And like, even though this was kind of a, a minor scene, maybe something that was really, I thought was just so beautiful was when they're at the, I forget if they're at like a nature preserve or like an alligator park or something, but Avery and, and Victor and and the things that she's so fascinated by, but then he's kind of picking up on like all these things the animals are doing that are like sneaky or devious, you know, like he's seeing it from this very kind of like schemer perspective um, and just how thoroughly their worldviews kind of permeate the book and in all of these small details. Once you know the character, you can just, all the characters, you just, it's just a question of finding an interesting place to put them. Right. And letting it all play out. I mean, I just drove around a lot and like went to different places in Louisiana and Mississippi and tried to figure out where they would go and what they would do. And so there, I went I went and visited a lot of those places and just kind of placed my characters there. All these things just sort of show up if you put yourself out there in the world, you know? Right, right. You mentioned a minute ago, not particularly liking Barbara. What do you feel like at this point, you know, having done seven books, like what, what do you need to feel toward a character to consider that a good character or a person worth writing through? You know, you don't necessarily have to like them, but, but you just have to kind of stay fascinated by them, do you think? Or what is it? Yeah, I mean, she was a problem for me to solve. I was like, oh, I don't like her. So I'm going to figure out how to like her or if there is a way to like her. Whereas some characters I really liked and then I wrote them into not liking them or to like really understanding what their flaws were. Like I, I really liked Twyla at the beginning and then by the end I was kind of like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> we can't really talk about that because we don't want to like spoil her. But Right, right. You know, she wasn't my favorite by the end. So um, although I still like her. Mm-hmm. I still like her. And I think it can be really hard when you do have characters you're really fond of to put them in trying such or, you know, to, to kind of feed them conflict, I think can be hard because you like them so much sometimes. Yeah. So I don't know. Again, it's, it just goes back to if I understand the characters or the characters are strong, you know, they surprise you Mm -hmm. as you're working on them. That is the core of what I write. Like I'm not a high, necessarily a high concept writer. You know, this book probably had the most plot that I've ever had in a book Mm, mm -hmm. because so much of my work is like about minor emotional movements. Mm -hmm. So this was bigger things. Things actually happen here. But I'm not like a I'm never going to write the 500 page book. I don't want to say I don't have the attention span for it, but I just don't think it's my I don't know if it's how my brain works. I don't know. I do sometimes like to read a 500 page book, Mm -hmm. but I think it only works if it's funny. Mm hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the structure, that long day. What appealed to you about that? As you say, this is more major emotional movement and it's a it's a very heightened dramatic situation. So to kind of keep it in this container serves that. Yeah. I mean, there's so there's so a ton of flash flashing back and a little bit of flashing forward. So I I kind of there's a little bit of a cheat on it. Mm-hmm. Originally, it was just over the course of the day, whereas now the book has like a before and an after, mm-hmm. like out of that scope of that day. Yeah, um, it seemed interesting. I mean, it was kind of like a sort of a textbook stake, 
right? Like S-T-A-K-E, right. not steak. <laughs> <laughs> like you eat, you know, putting it in a really tight time frame is like, just makes it instantly a more, I don't want to say appealing, but it's like, it's just a hook for the reader, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a challenge for me. Like, how do I like contain all this, this entire story and make this story interesting? Or I've never done it before. Mm-hmm. It was new to me. I wish I knew the answer to like, when I knew that it was just going to be over the course of a day. Mm-hmm. I think I'd always just seen the times of day mm-hmm. in my head more than anything else. Like I was like, stuff is going to happen in the morning, stuff is going to happen in the afternoon, stuff is going to happen in the evening. And so I think it's a sort of naturally coalesced in that way. I was really happy to do it that way. I was really happy to keep things really tight and orderly. That is appealing to me as a writer and as a reader also. The flashes are so, it all happens so fluidly. And I imagine that's not always an easy task to kind of keep those dots all connected and kind of keep all the balls in the air. I mean, my first drafts are always just like, let it go and not worry about it. And like, when things show up, just put them in there and then you can always fix things later. Right. I don't sweat it too much if I'm writing out of the linear path of the book. I've done it before. So usually when it shows up, it shows up for a reason. You know, all this stuff is like tricks, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want it to be like gimmicks or anything like that, but it's like, how do I make things fun for the reader? How do I make things feel dynamic and interesting? Like what would entertain me? What would make me kind of lose my breath a little bit, you know, right. What makes me keep flipping the pages to see what the writer is going to do next. And then also just like is fun for you in the writing process. I imagine more fun, very fun for me in the writing process. I love to have lots of different kinds of voices. I love to talk to the reader. Sometimes I talk to the reader Like in St. Maisie, I had somebody who was kind of talking to the reader who was like assembling all the information that was there. Mm -hmm. That wasn't me. Right. So there was like an author that was like underneath the me author. And then with the last book, I talked to the reader, but I'm talking through the character's voice. Yeah. That is meant to feel like she's telling you a story about her life. Right. This book, when there's times that I talk to the reader, for the most part, it's me be one or two times that I'm like letting the character kind of do it a little bit more or there's kind of like a merging or something. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But it's all very conscious on my part. Without giving anything away at one point, there's this interjection like, oh, you think she didn't know about that? She knew about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was writing it and I was like, this is what's been going on here. Right. Telling the reader this is what's been going on here. So sometimes that doesn't work. I would say that I, I have cut those or had my editor cut those on occasion where it's a little too like, just doesn't, it's just not working tonally, probably. Sure. For various reasons. So, but you just put it all in there, just try it and see if it works, you know? Yeah. I can't believe my dog didn't come in here whining in the course of our our conversation because I'm alone in the house today. And usually he gets a little fussy when he realizes that my door is shut. I love my dog a lot. (laughs) I miss him. (laughs) He's an important part of my creative process. Mm-hmm. Little Sydney Morris Attenberg. He has three names or two names, Sydney and Morris, named after both of the dead grandfathers. He also has several titles and distinguished degrees. He's a PhD. He's an Esquire. He's been <laughs> knighted. Kind of like Elton John, where you get knighted for your service in the areas of entertainment and culture. Right. Yes. That's funny because I kind of always describe my dog, Jasper, as a sort of like Oxford Don slash Dos Equis man. 
yeah. <laughs> like the most interesting man in the world. Like I feel like he's kind of at that intersection. Right. It's good to know their intersections. <laughs> he's just very cute and um and very fun and a good time and people really like him. He is much better as a host than he is like out in the world. Like he's not a great guest. Like he definitely has mm-hmm. like had accidents in other people's homes and things like that. So we try to keep him kind of close to home or, you know, he's good on the streets. He knows all his neighbors. He knows how to get treats. He knows which cafes have treats. He knows the record store has treats. He knows our neighbor, Joan, who we love a lot. He can get treats from her. So, you know, they're great. They're, they put you out in the world. I'm not going to, I can't say anything new about a dog that hasn't already been said. (laughs) No, that's okay. I would love to talk a little bit about the Thousand Words of Summer project and more broadly like that idea of writerly community, which, you know, I think is so much what I'm trying to create with WMFA also. So I was really drawn to that. And it's funny talking about putting everything in there. I was just revisiting some of those tiny letters and Celeste Ng's sign that just says, worry about that later. (laughs) It's like, oh, I think I probably should get one of those myself. But can you talk a little bit about that project and kind of why you wanted to do that, you know, for yourself and then kind of how it, I know it grew into its own bigger thing. Yeah, I had a friend in New Orleans who is a teacher and a writer. She's published a memoir. And she was like working on a book proposal. And, you know, teachers get the summers off. And I was had to finish this book. And so I said, well, let's do like a little boot camp where we write a thousand words every day, but for like two weeks straight, like not just the five days a week that I usually do. And she said, okay, let's do it. And then I think I tweeted about it and maybe I posted it on Instagram too. Like I was like, oh, I'm going to do this thing. And so many people immediately were like, yes, I want to do it. Like it was kind of scary how many people wanted to do it. Like it was like hundreds of people immediately. So I said, all right, I'll pick a date. And then um, I was like, I guess I'll do like a newsletter And then, you know, very organic, very organic, very natural, not one of those things that if you planned it, it would never have worked. Now I did the second year and already it was like a huge pain in the ass because people were like so demanding. (laughs) I was like, you're not paying for this. (laughs) Like, shut up. How were they demanding? Complaining about it online. And I was like, I'm just going to block you now because I don't need it. But anyway, really that first year was really lovely. And I had so, you know, I contacted a lot of my writer friends and said, can you write a little letter for me and everybody was happy to do it and continues to be happy to do it. And, and it was just really, it worked out. I mean, it was, it's a ton of work because I have to write the letters, get contact the people. I manage whatever, you know, sort of natural online community that comes out of it. Like I'm checking people's tweets about it and things like that mm-hmm. and Instagram posts. Um, and then I have to write my own thousand words a day. Right. So it's a lot of work, but also like when I'm in it, it's so amazing because it's like, we've claimed the small corner of the internet universe for ourselves and everyone's so supportive and everyone seems to get a lot out of it. I know several people have like finished books and gotten book deals out of it. I know I hear from people who say I haven't written in years and it was just really exciting to delve into it again. And, and everyone's coming at it from like different places. You know, they're like, some people just want to do it for fun and some people want to do it because they have to finish a project and some people are using it to like really set real goals and they keep restarting you know I know people keep restarting and doing it but there also is like some conflict that has come out of it I don't want to say like it's like an ideal situation but it's mostly I mean I think I will do it again and I really love doing it but occasionally there's like you know weird moments of conflict and there's like people like kind of criticizing like a thousand words is too much or you need to we're doing a different kind of writing than that because they're doing like, I don't know, legal writing or mm. I don't remember what it was, but they're like, they're like, there's 
people are sort of feeling pressure to do it. And I'm like, I don't, I, you don't have to do it. Right. Like, you right. Really, you don't have to, it's all right. Or you don't have to tell me. Exactly. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. That's not why I exist to do it. I'm just trying really hard to put like some super good vibes out there. Right. And, and provide you with some tools to inspire you, to get you to the next place. I mean, it's just, the, you know, it's the magic of the internet. These are the things that happen. We went from like 2000 people in the first year to 5,000 people the second year. I've switched mailing lists because the first mailing list kind of crapped out and I know it wasn't as successful. Like it didn't go out to everybody all the time, yeah. but also it existed online for anyone to click on at every, at any moment of the day and c- continues to exist. So, um, I was just working the kinks out, but it was a really interesting experiment and I really love it. And next year I'm going to do, I've done fiction twice and I'm going to do non, I'm working on a nonfiction book next. So next year mm. I'm going to focus on nonfiction and getting nonfiction writers to, talk. But I think the, it'll still be helpful for people who are writing fiction just to sit down and, and do it. I've obviously thought about all of this a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> it's been such a fascinating process because I think I would say 99% of the people in the world who are doing it are really getting quite a bit out of it. And the 1%, I, I don't know what to say. I just want I just want people to be happy for a little bit. Yeah. I just wanted everyone to be a little bit happier. <laughs> <laughs> and how far is, you know, that thousand words a day, Mark, like how different does that look from your, your day-to-day practice? Do you have a kind of daily goal that you're, you know, number of hours, number of words, something like that? I mean, I'm not doing anything right now. I just grabbed 10 minutes just to write in my journal just before we talked because that was the time that I had. It's very weird because my next book is nonfiction. I usually when I'm on tour, I have a novel or some sort of fiction that I'm working on that is like my I don't have to think about myself. I can just go into this world and it's, and it's like Mm. a deep deep pleasure for me. But because the project I'm working on is me, it's not really actually fun to go and work on it to escape. It will be next year, but right now it's not really an escape for me. So um, I'm not really doing anything, but my daily process really is the thousand words is, you know, getting up, going for a walk, reading, reading is really important to the process. Um, Maybe for like an hour writing, handwriting all morning, I remember with a thousand words, people were like, how do you, how do you know that you've hit a thousand if you're handwriting? Like, do you count? It's really, I think I know, <laughs> like basically, you know, what a thousand is or like what will get me to the thousand. Cause I'll type it up in the afternoon. So sometimes I'll write some stuff and I'll leave little holes knowing that I'll, it's just sort of forming in my head. And then by the time I get to it, I'll, I'll be typing it up. But I, you know, it's usually a thousand words. That's what I'm doing every day. I think this will be different for nonfiction because so much of it is like I'm using previously published essays and I don't know, we're going to see how it goes. I, I have a feeling I'm not going to want to do a nonfiction project again after I do this one <laughs> for a really long time. It's basically about my forties. So maybe when I'm like 70, I'll be ready to write about my sixties. This is a question that I like to ask everybody at the end of our talks, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Well, at this exact moment, it doesn't mean very much because I'm on tour. Um, I, although I suppose when if I got good reviews, that would be nice. That's like next week. I'm going to find out what my reviews are. So please keep your fingers crossed for me. Absolutely. Do you read the reviews? How do you approach that? I read the pre-pub reviews, the uh-huh. trade magazines, because I'm interested in what the narrative is going to be about the book. This time they kind of all said the same thing, Mm -hmm. but sometimes they say different things, like they focus on different things. But this time everyone's kind of like, you know, on the like dysfunctional family bandwagon, which is great. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know. I kind of skim them. My editor sometimes will say, you should read this one. It's really good. Mm -hmm. Like, it's really like they got it and they're really in conversation. I was kind of frustrated with the reviews last time because they were good, but I didn't, I don't know. I just didn't take, I didn't get anything out of them. Like, I didn't feel like I, I like learned anything from them. I guess we're not really talking about creative satisfaction, are we? Sorry. Oh, that's okay. We can we can get back to it. That's fine. Creative satisfaction really is like is getting up every day and doing the work and feeling like I accomplished something that day. And I, that makes me sane. That is it when I do the work. That's it, right? Like I'm that's the happiest moment for me is when I'm writing. The, all the rest of the stuff is like it becomes not about you anymore. It's not about your project and you don't own it. And no one is, is 100% going to get what you were going for. And so I've learned to separate myself from the before and after of a book. I like that. That's a good answer. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. The best way to support WMFA is to share it. If you enjoyed today's episode, tell a friend or write an iTunes review to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier, or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Irissa Apentaku. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.